It is with the Lord's gracious help that we hope to examine verses 2 to 8, verses 2 uh, to 8 together this evening. And not all of those verses uh, this evening we will examine and continue this uh, message next Lord's Day evening, God willing. But we will read those eight verses, those, those seven verses together once we've prayed. Let's pray. <coughs> oh Lord, we have had the privilege of reading thy word and, and towards the end of the chapter what solemn truths that we have read. And Lord, we do pray, Lord, that thou would be pleased to pour out thy spirit upon us that thy word would have a solemn and true and good working upon us. We know that the, the gospel was sent forth in the Old Testament and it had that working to convict and convert. But Lord, for those that, that would harden their heart, that it could be a word to condemn. But we look to Thee to have mercy upon all that are gathered in this evening and those watching and listening online, that, Lord, we look to Thee to be merciful to us. Forgive us our hardened hearts. Forgive us, O God, our pride. And cause us all to humble ourselves before Thee. Lord, may that word of conv- work of conviction, Lord, lead to conversion. Have mercy, we pray. Give help in the hearing of this word, of thy word, and in the preaching thereof. Pray for power and anointing and grace from above, and that Christ will be glorified. We pray thee these things in Jesus' name, and for his everlasting glory. Amen. we we'll read again verses uh, 2 to 8 of chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel account. Mark 9 and verse 2. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were so afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. Amen. The transfiguration of Christ upon this, this high mountain somewhere in in Israel 
in the presence of this inner circle of disciples of Peter, James and John is both a, a glorious event and quite a mysterious event as well when we, when we read it. It's a very unique event in the, in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And what does it mean and, and why did it happen? Well, if we were to open up the parallel accounts that we find in, in Matthew and in Luke, we gain more information, we would, we would understand that there are things that are added there that will help, to, uh, help us to understand something more of all that the transfiguration of Christ would teach us. And there is so much. I'd hope to, to examine all of these, uh, these uh, verses, 2 to 8, in, in one evening, but... There was too much for uh, that one sermon account. So this will be, as it were, split into two. And so we'll only examine the first few verses of these verses we have before us. But there is something to be taught. There are many things that we can understand from this. And that's what Paul writes when he wrote to the Romans. Uh, Romans 15 and verse 4, and he says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And although he would there be speaking of the Old Testament Scriptures, the truth is still valid, for these are the Scriptures of the New Testament. That we would understand, written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And this section of the Scriptures has much within it. And let us see then, and dive straight into what we have before us, and with the Lord's gracious help, see something of the glorious transfiguration of Christ. The glorious transfiguration of Christ. And we see firstly, and we'll try to understand something of the context, the circumstances of his transfiguration. The circumstances of his transfiguration. And we see then, firstly, the period of time. The three gospel accounts, if we were to read all three, uh, are very careful to date this occurrence. They give it a, a clear date, and we read here in chapter 9, verse 1, and after six days, and that's exactly what Matthew says as well. He says, and after six days, and the phrase in the Greek is also literally the same phrase, the, the meaning, the same thing, after six days. And yet, if you were to read Luke, Luke says, and just as clearly, and, such, and, and just as confidently, he says about an eight days after. About an eight days after. Well, six days, are, of course, are not the same as, as eight days. And, and cynics and atheists and liberal commentators would, would, would start triumphing uh, over this, this seeming contradiction. But it is no contradiction. The only contradiction is in their own misunderstanding and unbelief. In our own misunderstanding. But the Bible never con- contradicts itself. Never contradicts itself. But when we look at this, uh, it would appear that Matthew and Mark are both using a, a normal Hebrew phrase to talk about something on the seventh day, the seventh day, after six days. After six days, well, that's the seventh day. There's an expression of time that you would understand. But Luke, on the other hand, he seems to be using a, a Roman system, a Roman system called inclusive reckoning. Well, you start uh, counting from the day that you're mentioning, 
not, not, not the next day as we would do. And then you count all those days and then you include the final day. So let's see, so the day that the Lord makes this statement in, in verse 1 would be the first day, then there would be another six days in between, and then there would be this other day upon which this happened, the transfiguration. So using that Roman system, he would say uh, about an eight days after, which is the same as saying after six days. So we see something there of the, the period of time, if that contradiction would ever uh, rise up and you don't understand what that means, it's actually pointing to the same period of time. And secondly, we have the, the disciples themselves. Not all 12 disciples are here. Uh, we understand that uh, the other nine are down at the bottom of the mountain and we, once they come down from the mountain we've seen something of the situation uh, at hand between the scribes and the disciples arguing because uh, they were unable to heal uh, or cast out this, this father's, uh, the, the devil from this uh, uh, son of the father. But it's only this inner circle, and why only these three? Why only those three? Uh, and we see again that it's only those three that go further into the Garden of Gethsemane. The others are left near the, near the beginning of the, of the garden, and, and then the Lord brings only those three further into the garden as he then goes another step further and, and prays. And they have that privilege, as it were, of being a little bit closer to the praying and agonizing Christ, a little bit closer than the others. And we can surmise a few things based on what we know from the Scriptures. And one is that Christ did not want Judas to see this privileged view of him on the mount. This, this revelation of, of Christ's glory in the same way that he did to Moses in Exodus 34 that Moses had prayed and said, Lord, show me thy glory and, and the Lord agreed to do so but he wouldn't show him all of his glory but only the back parts and protecting Moses. And it was a privilege that Moses saw this and the people didn't see it. Aaron didn't see it. But Moses did. Although we know later on uh, that there is a, a time when the Lord reveals himself uh, to, uh, to Moses, to, to Aaron, and to the elders, the secular elders, as well as, um, I think, some religious elders as well. So, it's very likely that he did not want Judas, an, an, an unconverted, an unregenerate uh, man, to receive this glory. But maybe just looking at the three men himself, this Peter, the Peter, the, the future apostle um, to the Christ-rejecting Jews, has a glimpse of who Christ is to, to confirm him, to confirm him in his faith, because as he, in his faith, I should say, as he goes out and, and works amongst the Jews, and the Jews were, the, were often the, the, the most rejecting and violently rejecting of the gospel and of Christ. They would not have him as king. And so maybe to affirm him and strengthen him for that important future ministry. What about James then? Well, James was the first moderator of the, of the church in Jerusalem. And, and he oversaw the council in Acts 15, and maybe he also needed to see that foretaste of Christ's exaltation. Why? Well, to lead the church before he himself became the second martyr of the church after Stephen. 
And what about John then? Well, John, we understand, was the longest-lived disciple and a beloved disciple. And maybe the Lord wanted him to see something of, of his glory revealed to prepare him for a future more intense and more dazzling revelation that he would yet receive. And so, in the book of Revelation... So we've seen the time period, we've seen the, the disciples who were there. And then what about this mountain? Which mountain is it? It's only called a high mountain. And it's never clearly identified in the scripture. But there are some scriptural mountains that have been, have been linked with it. Uh, there's Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon. Now Mount Tabor is a, is a little less than 2,000 feet. It's not a very high mountain, but it, is, it, it, it does stick out on its own in a quite a flat area. And there is a very early tradition that says that was the mountain. But the other mountain, Mount Hermon, is a much higher mountain. It's 10,000 feet, and it's closer to Caesarea Philippi. And if you were to uh, read back into chapter 8, you see that's exactly where they are. Chapter 8 and verse 27, and it says, And Jesus went out and his di- disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And so that would make more sense, should we say. It's a very high mountain, and it's in the area also. But that's just to give us some knowledge and some background information as we now come to, secondly, to the incarnate Son of God, Transfigured, The incarnate Son of God, transfigured. We come to the actual transfiguration. Now this word transfiguration, it's not a very common word that we would use in English at all. You might actually even know the Greek word that's behind it in the scriptures, the word metamorphosis. The metamorphosis, again, is not a very common word, but if you've done any, any poetry, you might have heard of it. A metamorphosis is literally the changing of appearance, even going so far as to the changing of, of, of the shape and of the form, but it is the change of appearance. And Christ suddenly appeared very differently to his disciples. Very differently. Let's see, the, firstly, the moment of his transfiguration. As far as the disciples have been told, they had been taken apart to go up to a mountain in order to pray. That was the reason why he, he, he took them up. And we, we can read that in, in, in Mark, in Matthew and in Luke. And without a doubt, it wasn't just Christ who was there to pray, but all four were there to pray. But we see also that the disciples were having difficulty fighting sleep. And maybe something you're also aware of, that when you pray, the body suddenly decides to get quite drowsy and sleepy as you're trying to pray. Luke 9 and verse 32 uh, gives us uh, this truth. It says, But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. So it is possible in some believe that this happened at night, Well, that is very possible because it took a while to get up the mountain and then it took a while to get down the mountain. So by the time uh, the transfiguration had taken place and they'd walk all the way down the mountain many hours later, uh, then it would have been daylight and then they would come across the scene uh, with with the scribes and the Pharisees and the father and and the child. So they were there to pray. That was the reason why they went up there. And that's exactly what we see. Is at the very time of Christ's praying that the transfiguration happened. Luke 9, 29. And as he prayed, 
the fashion, that is, the appearance of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. And although we, hear, uh, we have here a glimpse of something of Christ's divinity and of Christ's uh, glory, we should remember that Christ is truly man. He is truly man. His humanity is a full humanity. It is a true humanity. And, and I've used this phrase before, but it's good to understand this truth, that his divinity is 100% and his humanity is 100%. The miracle of the incarnation. 100% God plus 100% man is 100% Christ. Christ possesses two natures. He has this divine nature and he has a human nature. But he's not two persons. He's one person. One glorious, glorious God-man. And this God-man, Jesus Christ, he prayed as a real human being. Uh, he prayed. He needed to pray. He desired to pray. He, he must pray because he is, he is in our stead. He has taken on our form. He's taken on humanity. And he prayed and he prayed and this season of prayer became a glorious season of prayer. And not only did heaven uh, come down at his prayer and Moses and Elijah appeared, but his father's voice becomes audible to all who are upon the mount. Now this is to encourage us to pray. We can't turn around and say, well, that was Jesus Christ. And of course Jesus Christ could pray in a way that we could never pray. And there's, there's certainly a truth in that. But remember, he was 100% human and yet without sin, true, holy and righteous within himself. And yet he, he must pray and therefore we must pray. And let it let this occurrence of Christ praying and not every time that Christ went up the mount was he transfigured not every time that he went early in the morning to pray and have a season of prayer for two, three hours again was he transfigured but at this time he was and let, it, let it, this occurrence encourage us to pray not that we will be transfigured but let, us let it encourage us to know that extended prayer is a means of grace, of knowing the presence of God, of greater holiness, and of our own glorifying here on earth. Having humbled ourselves, having spent time with the Lord. And all believers must know something of this, it may be in the past now. It may have happened in the past and, and it doesn't happen much now because the seasons of prayers are, are interrupted by things of life. But Christ had a very busy ministry. Christ never ceased to work except for those times that he must pray or he took his disciples apart. But even that taking his disciples apart was, was, a, was a work, a teaching a mentoring. But he knew this much, the prayer and times of prayer, seasons of prayer were important for him, how much more important for us, their own souls would, as it were, be glorified in the presence of the Spirit of Christ as we pray. That we would be drawn, as it were, closer to heaven, even as heaven is drawn closer to Christ in this transfiguration that there would be more light within as opposed to the darkness that we have, as our brother read this morning from Matthew. That there would be light 
that there would be more light. Let us be encouraged when we consider Christ praying and his spirit within us causing us to say, Abba, Father, call his Father, our Father. What about the description of his transfiguration then? As he prayed, he is metamorphosed, he is transfigured, he is changed in appearance from a a simple physical human being as you and I to something glorious, radiant, heavenly. And we see that in, in, in descriptions that describe his clothes that his clothes, uh, Mark 9 verse 3, as we read here, and it says in his raiment, his, his, his clothing became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Now I wouldn't blame you for not knowing what a fuller is. Now a fuller is an Anglo-Saxon craft, a trade. The fuller was a man that worked with something called fuller's earth, a type of clay. And he would get that clay and he would make a sort of a a very watery slurry and he would use that uh, to wash uh, fabric. The fabric came, woolen fabric especially. Woolen fabric, it was grimy, it was greasy. It had the grease uh, from from the wool itself and it had the the dirt that stuck to the grease. So the the grimy wool having been, uh, maybe the wool itself being cleaned before it's made into a cloth and after it's made into a cloth again, uh, it cleaned, bleached, a form of bleach it is. That fuller's earth is also called bleaching clay. And so it strips the wool of the discoloration Uh, strips it of those dirt and the oils and leaves behind a beautiful white piece of woolen cloth. And for the ancient world there was there was nothing so pure and so white as a garment that had been that had been well treated in Fuller's earth by a professional Fuller. And therefore this is very familiar language. Fuller's earth is all over the world used in all different societies, but he's here to, he uses this familiar language that people would know, this is really clean, this is really white. We might think of a a really clean white and starched shirt. He says, dazzling white, pure white. And again, he talks about the purity of it, he says it's just like snow, exceeding white, not just any old white, but exceeding white as snow. And of course, that's freshly fallen snow clean and pure and bright as it gets, as the sun reflects of it and it dazzles you, you know, that type of dazzling white that can blind, the snow blindness that you can get. Now we're getting to the idea of the garments of Christ and the dazzling glory as he is transfigured uh, before them. And Matthew compares the whiteness of Christ's uh, transfigured clothing uh, to light itself. He says it's light and Luke uses that word glistering, a word that means that it was a dazzling whiteness. In fact, that word for the glistering can also be used for the, for the extreme white flash you get with lightning. So again, we're not just talking about a, a little lamp with, with showing off some light. It's not just, it's not just a, a slight glow. We're talking about an, an extreme white and pure uh, glow that, although it's not said there, we can well imagine them that they're shielding their eyes as they're looking upon their Lord and Master. But how can, how can clothing glow? How can it shine, in, in, well, more than glow, how can it glisten with such a bright light? They are only earthly materials after all. 
Well, firstly this, consider this. It's Christ's body that is transfigured. And that is shining through the garments. That is causing the garments to shine through and no doubt giving them some holy uh, uh, glistening themselves in a similar way. As Moses went into, the, uh, into that uh, tabernacle, the small tabernacle that he had set up to have uh, meetings with the Lord and to pray with the Lord. And, uh, and it's the Lord's glory. The Lord uh, was, was shining before him and, but, and yet it had an effect upon him so much so that he went out and people are afraid of looking upon Moses' face because it was shining with the glory of God. So it's not just the, maybe not just the body of Christ, but certainly it is, but also the, the glory that's given to his, his garments, which are themselves pure garments, not spotted with sin at all. Well, secondly, consider the, the truth of Christ's incarnation when we consider this, that when he took on the form of man, that his garments, that, that he was and he is, pure there's a there's a relationship here that in his his garments that he puts on in some way that he has put on our humanity and yet the holiness of the son of god and his divinity at this moment especially it shines through even into and through his humanity maybe something like that is also indicated as we consider this secondly besides his body we see his face and the face gets maybe some more attention in Luke. Well, in Mark's, uh, in Mark's account, he, he merely says that he was transfigured before them. So that would include the face and the body. Uh, but Mark gives attention to the, to the clothing. But it's Luke that says this in Luke 9 and verse 29. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening, and then we go to Matthew, and that's why it's so helpful that we have these different accounts that we can compare and contrast and get a fuller picture, as I mentioned last Lord's Day. Matthew 17 and verse 2, And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And John does not include this in his gospel account. It's not there, this transfiguration of Christ. And yet, as we read in the, in the call to worship, he, he received a greater revelation, a greater and a glo- more glorious um, picture or a vision of the risen and exalted God-man as we read. And I'll read some of that now. He's from Revelation 1. Just very briefly in verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool. It doesn't mention that here. That may have may not been the case. But it says here, and his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. And be giving us an indication of of the transfiguration of Christ, the glorification of... Now, in comparison of the transfiguration with the glorification, and the glorification is much more and much more glorious. But what we do see is the very face of Christ in his majestic and divine glory pours forth a bright and holy light. And this is a glorious indication to the three disciples who were there as witnesses and to you and to me that this Christ is God. He's God. He's not just some prophet of Nazareth. He's not just some Middle Eastern mystic. 
but that he himself is God. That's, that, that's something that must have penetrated the soul. It may not have understood, the, they may not have, uh, have had it in the understanding as of yet, these three disciples. But that he is God. And, and John certainly understood that more as he then wrote his first epistle. Chapter 1 and verse 5, for he says this, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And this Christ is pure light. As he, as he, as it were, peels back the, the humanity, or he shines through the humanity. Shines through the clothing. The glorious light. The glory of Christ, as it were, leaking through the human flesh. As it were, can't wait to get out and to reveal to the whole world who he is. And it lights up the mount, it dazzles the eyes, and it causes fear to be struck into the hearts of these three disciples. And consider how they now receive these three disciples a foretaste of the glory that belongs to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And something of that divine glory now being revealed just for a small time, while, which had been hidden while he is in his human form. And, and, and Paul the Apostle reveals that to the Philippians. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, he says this, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now that dazzling, holy purity, that divine power and, and, and majesty are shining through his humanity. It always been there. Always been there. But it pleased Christ to hide it. Because he humbled himself. He therefore humbled, as it were, the revelation of his glory. That he would appear as a man. As a mere man. Making himself of no reputation. Being one of us. And being a poor man. So poor that Joseph and Mary could not afford the standard sacrifice for the cleansing, the ritual cleansing of Mary having given birth to a firstborn son. The two sheep, they couldn't afford it. They could afford the two doves. That's what they could afford to give as that sacrifice for her cleansing. Born poor, born under the law. Humbled in so many ways. His glory was hidden. And yet mankind's glory and holiness itself was lost in the fall. Completely lost. No glory, no holiness, uh, no righteousness. The image of God that was created in Adam and in Eve that has now become so marred and so disfigured into such a form of man, Christ must come to save fallen man. So the glory hidden not laid aside the glory hidden but now we see Christ allowing some of his glory to partially come through to, to, to shine through to shine upon the mount that he created to shine upon the disciples that he had created and he sustained at that moment that he had called that he had saved 
and he would go to the cross for and some of his glory is going upon them also and John remembers this deeply he says this at the beginning of his gospel account in John 1 and verse 14 he says and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth those words are, are referring back to the experience that he had there on the mount having walked miles up the mount having failed in, in, in that time of prayer together with Christ with heavy eyes so they didn't even deserve this it was a gracious act of Christ for his own disciples this glorious Christ revealing himself shining forth this Christ who is God whom angels adore whom the seraphim as we saw in Isaiah 6 uh, cry holy 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 this self same Christ who is called in Daniel the ancient of days and before whom as Paul writes in Philippians 2 verses 10 11 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven of things in earth of things under the earth this Christ this Christ and it's very possible that the display of Christ's glory was not only for the benefit of the disciples and not only for our benefit as we read and study and, and try to understand something more of the transfiguration but also for Moses and Elijah's sake for they in heaven had seen the glorious son of God sitting on his throne they had had fellowship with him they had they had spoken with him and it is by by the command of the son of God who was still on the throne as he is transfigured on earth that, that they are brought down they appear with him as he is in his human form on the mount and they had both spoken of Christ they had both uh, been types of Christ and here they are plucked out of glory as it were glorified together with their Lord and with their God and, and there's nothing that disturbs that glorification of theirs there's nothing that disturbs their glorious fellowship with their Savior it is as it were that they're in heaven communing with him speaking of gospel matters because they certainly speak of gospel matters when they're on the mount and then they appear with their Lord they're not taken back at his humanity for God he's glorious in front of them in front of them and they carry on that they have that conversation speaking about his decease and God willing next time we will look at what that means and then they're taken back to glory to continue their fellowship with the son of God that sits enthroned upon the throne of God without a break having continuous fellowship for that is what is before us believer an eternity of full and sweet and unbroken fellowship with the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us who desires that communion far more than we do if we can pray for half an hour we're, we're very pleased with ourselves and it's good for us that we do that I mock it not and yet he desires it far more than we do that he would have the communion that sweet fellowship with those that love him and by his grace are called to him
You know, at death, for the believer, the soul goes immediately into the presence of Christ. Immediately to be with him and to be with all of Christ's people. Uh, The phrase in in Abraham's bosom uh, merely means that we're going into the very heart of fellowship with the Lord. uh, That the Lord is now our friend. He is our Lord. He is our God. We fear him, but we love him. And he is our uh, faithful friend. So at death there is what? An An immediate glorification, seeing as we're considering glory. An immediate glorification of the soul of the believer. And that soul, even without the body, is able to talk and to think and to exist. And we see that with Moses. Moses died on earth. Moses' body is buried on earth. Moses' soul went to be in glory. But even for Elijah, Elijah's different. Elijah was taken up into heaven, body and soul. And is sustained in heaven. With a beating heart and the lungs that breathe. And he too has full and sweet fellowship with the Lord. And both are examples of how we will be either at death or at the resurrection. Constant, glorious fellowship with Christ. Eternally glorified in holiness. And together with the Lord. Not just alive, but living like we never lived before. Thriving like we've never thrived before. There'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sadness, there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more corruption, there'll be no more death, but thriving and living in the glory and the bliss of Christ himself. That's why it says in the future that there will be no sun and no moon. We will see the transfigured, fully transfigured Lord of glory, and he will be our sun, and he will be our light, and he will be our life, and we will be transfigured by him and through him as his clothes are here by that glorious body and it has pleased Christ to show us these glorious truths and and to give us a glimpse of his glorious self because this is our redeemer this is our covenant head this is the king of glory this glorious God, man, Christ Jesus, this is our God, together with the Father and with the Spirit. This is Jehovah, the glorious one. Now maybe to you as we close and we consider a gospel application, maybe to you Christ is is just a name, just a man, just a prophet, just an historical figure, maybe just a good man. And maybe you come in here uh, this evening with quite that low image of who Jesus is. A name you read in the Bible. A religious figure. A very earthly view of Christ, if I may say. A very low view of Christ. But do you not now see that there is much, much more to this Christ? That he is a glorious and conquering and victorious Lord. That is his holiness and his divinity we see here beginning to shine through and we've seen more as we looked at Revelation. He is your creator. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He sustains your life by the word of his power. Every heartbeat, thank thee Lord. Every blood cell that absorbs the oxygen and takes it round your body is from the Lord Jesus Christ.
has spoken it, he has determined it, and he sustains it. And even though now you do not see his humanity or his divinity, for he has ascended into heaven, yet he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. The question is, will you survive his righteous judgment over your sin and your guilt? Will you survive that? Well, no, not if you die in your sin and your guilt. Not if you leave this life still in debt to this Jesus, still an enemy of this Jesus, still a rebel against him, still hating him. However strict your religion might be, however full of religious emotions you might be, if you die in your sin and your guilt, you will not survive his righteous judgment. And what will happen then? Then he will have his angels that sing his praise night and day. He will have them cast you into the lake of fire that burns for eternity. That fire is never snuffed out. As, is the, as there is eternal life, there is eternal death. And the Lord made that very clear as he, as he preached at the end of Mark 9. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. So that you too will burn for eternity. And Christ will be glorified in taking everlasting revenge upon your sinful soul and body. He will be glorified in that. But the only way to escape that fair and righteous judgment that Christ will make over your soul is to make peace with him now. It's to make peace with him now through the gospel, through the good news. So you understand something more of the bad news, but here we have that good news, the good news. It is good news. You are therefore to sorrowfully repent of your sin before him. You've committed against him. And you are to believe him and his word. And you are to follow this glorious Christ. Seek his salvation from his hand. And Christ will be glorified in saving and loving your soul forever. Christ will be glorified in you one way or the other either as your judge or as your saviour. And you will either be eternally glorified with Christ or you will be eternally destroyed by Christ. And therefore, we finish with this call to Christ, is that you are to repent of your sin and you are to believe the gospel. Believe the gospel means what? Believe the good news that Christ died for your sin and so you come to him on your knees, in your heart at least, repenting of your wickedness. You've sinned against him. Call upon his name. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lest we must say, with what was said in Numbers 32 and 23. But if you will not do so, behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out.
Amen, my God. Bless that word to your eternal salvation. And pluck you all as brands out of the hell, even this evening by his grace. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thee thanks and praise uh, for this uh, glimpse of Christ, the glorified Lord. O oh God, what a Saviour we have. O oh Father, what, uh, what for gift is thy Son, that thou didst so love the world and give him, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank thee for him. Oh, let us learn more of him. Let us learn experientially more of who he is for our souls. Let us close our eyes thinking on him. Let us open our eyes in the morning looking unto him. Grant us grace, O Lord, for we confess that the the flesh is so dead. But we thank thee for that life now and the eternal life that is to be had in Christ. Lord, think of those in mercy in this thy house this evening, who have sat under the reading and the preaching of thy word. We pray for thee to have mercy, to draw them, and Lord, cause them to obey the gospel command. As we made that, that they may have a fresh glimpse of a glorious Savior and be themselves saved by him and for him. Hear us in Christ's name. And for his glory. Amen.